0: Hey what's up everybody, welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krause. Let's dive in. Hey what's up everybody? Good afternoon, well, afternoon for me. No idea what time it is for you. Maybe it's the afternoon, maybe it's the morning. No idea. Uh, But I hope you're having a fantastic day day so far, I ask you to bear with me a little bit today if uh, my my brain doesn't work as well as it sometimes does, uh, it's been a bit of a day, we've been setting up the uh, live stream capabilities in the church for this weekend and setting up the camera and it's been a day, yeah, it's been a day, so uh, but I wanted to get as much content out there as I could, or I'm trying to get as much content out there as I can, I should say. And so I really wanted to record this podcast. It's a podcast I'm excited about. I think it's a really cool, fun one. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about the senses of scripture, according to Thomas Aquinas, and also applying that and looking at the story of creation with Adam and Eve and all that good stuff. Uh, Before we dive into all of that, uh, your Greek word of the day is diatheke. So diatheke uh, means uh, testament, will, or covenant. So fun fact about Greek, uh, is that one word uh, oftentimes means one, two, three, four, or five, six, seven, I don't know, uh, more than one thing in English. It's not a one-to-one interpretation uh, translation uh, some of the time. I should say most of the time. A lot of the times the uh, Greek words uh, uh, could mean multiple things. And that's part of the reason why you see multiple translations of Scripture out there, right? Uh, that's why we have the New American Translation, we have the ESV translation, we have the RSV translation, we have the NRSV translation. We have all these. We have the King James Bible. All these different translations out there, uh, because uh, the Greek um, can mean a few different things, and a lot of the times you have to de- determine the word based on the context of the passage, which makes which makes translation a little bit tricky. So diatheke uh, is Greek, yeah, it means a uh, testament, will, or covenant. So a lot of times. When you, uh, when you see a covenant in the Old Testament, in uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, uh, you see this word diatheke. Uh, when you hear of St. Paul talking about uh, covenant, you, you, he uses the word diatheke. Uh, and also, so uh, we have the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, it's the same word. We have, so it's Old Covenant and New Covenant. So the New Covenant, obviously the covenant that Jesus won for us on the cross through his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, so we're going to dive in. And one of the things I think it's prudent to start with um, when it comes to Scripture is, you know, why even, you know, why was Scripture even necessary? Why did God feel it necessary to give us Scripture to uh, point us uh, through the direction of this written word? Uh, And so St. Thomas Aquinas, good old doctor of the church, tells us uh, it is necessary, or it was necessary, that man should be taught by divine revelation. Because the truth about God, such as reason would discover, would only be known by a few, and that after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors. So if we never had divine revelation, if God never spoke to man, we we could get to know him through reason, but it would be only by a few, because not that... Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is an elitist necessarily, uh, intellectual elitist. That's not really it. Uh, but he's just a realist. He, he realized that most people don't sit down and contemplate metaphysical realities often, right? Most people are trying to get food on the table. Most people are trying to provide for their families. So most people just don't have time to think about these things, uh, which, is, which is reasonable, right? I mean, especially think about, you know, Jesus' day, even before Jesus' day, um, think of Old Testament times. Really, I mean, they were, you you literally have to survive, right? You need food and water and clothing and shelter. And that will take up basically all your time. Uh, It's, you know, even I think about uh, Aristotle here, right? Aristotle talks about this, saying how uh, even though the philosopher is kind of the best existence, the thinking man, the best kind of uh, existence, uh, he realizes that the philosopher only exists because of all the people who provide uh, food, water, clothing, shelter—to them, right. So we all depend on each other, and even even Aristotle, right? He 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 kind of got to this point of God. He reasoned that there was only one God. Um, so when you think about like you know the pagan world, everybody thinks they they all believed in multiple gods and Zeus and all these things. And no, that that wasn't true. The philosophers knew that um, the Greek gods of old—they um, they were illogical. They didn't make sense. Uh, Aristotle. Came to a point where he realized, uh, through just reason, through thinking about it for a long time, that if there is a God, there's only one God, and this God uh, would be constantly he'd be a being thinking of himself for all eternity, basically. Uh, and so, what he what he got right was the fact that there was only one God, and this God would be eternal, kind of like thoughts, right? And we we see that pretty closely in the fact that um, you know the Word is God, eternally thinking of himself and loving himself, and the, this thought produces or generates a word, I should say, namely the Son of God. Um, and that's a totally different podcast for a totally different time. Trinitarian theology will rock your world. And if you say like one word wrong, you're a heretic for all time, apparently. Um, and this, and so, uh, that's yeah, so anyway, Trinitarian theology, topic for another day. Um, but anyway, Aristotle was one of these few who got to know a decent amount about God uh, through thinking, Right. But Aquinas is telling us that revelation is necessary because um, God doesn't want to only be known by a few. He wants to be known by everybody. And he doesn't want it to have to take a, a really, really long time. He wants you to know that he loves you from the start. And you would never get there just by thinking about it. And you know, lastly, Aquinas says, and there'd be a mixture of many errors. And God doesn't want there to be errors when it comes to knowing things about him or his son or his plan for us. He wants you to know from the that, that he is love and that he loves you and wants nothing more than your salvation. And to to you be united with him eternally in heaven. Uh, So revelation is necessary, right? Scripture is definitely necessary for our salvation. Uh, But revelation also uh, isn't just scripture, right? So there's one eternal font, namely the word of God. And there's kind of uh, two fountains, right? We have the fountain of scripture. We also have the fountain of uh, the church, right? We have the fountain of a tradition you know we have tr- faith, uh, scripture and tradition big t tradition uh, namely uh, when the church comes together and you know in these uh, ecumenical councils and uh, when you know the fact that there we know that there's a trinity right there's father son and holy spirit that came about um, there's basis in scripture but it doesn't say dogmatically in scripture that the father is co-equal to the son is co-equal to the spirit And that they're all one being, but three different persons. Like, no, like that's not in Scripture directly. And in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, you know, Jesus says, says, "Go out and baptize all people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit." So that's our scriptural basis. But it only became like Christian dogma that to to say that you, if you are a Christian, you believe that God is Trinity of persons in one being and one nature. That only became a reality through the church, right? So we have one eternal source, namely the word, but we have two fonts. We have scripture and tradition. Uh, So zooming in on scripture, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, says there's four senses of scripture. And this is really important uh, going forward in this podcast because we have to understand that when we look at scripture, we're going to look at it through a few different lenses, right? We're going to look at it through a few different lenses or senses. Really, there's two Um, But the second one kind of splits off into three different categories. The first sense of scripture, according to Aquinas, is the historical or the literal sense. So think of um, the stories of like King David, Solomon, uh, Elijah and the prophets, um, Moses, uh, saying a lot of those uh, very practical stories, Um, Adam and Eve, which we'll get to in a second, uh, why there's what parts you need to have to take literally and what parts uh, might not be enough to debate and interpretation. So it's just the historical literal sense. Uh, When you read that Jesus was uh, born, you know, in Bethlehem, but he was a, you know, he's from Nazareth and all these things. That's just, that's literally like, yeah, he was born in Bethlehem. Like (laughs) you don't have to over-spiritualize it. Um, And yeah, he lived in Nazareth. Cool. Like it's just literally what the text says is what it meant. It's what it means. Um, And a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters will stop here and say, this is the only sense of scripture and the church doesn't agree with that. The, church, the Catholic church says, no, there's, there's, uh, there's more than one sense of scripture, which we'll get to in a little bit. And so, yeah, so the historical literal sense, that is exactly what it sounds like, historical literal. Uh, now, the spiritual sense is the next one. This really has three categories. The first category is called the allegorical sense. Uh, so think of the story of Moses strikes the rock and, and the water comes out, right? And St. Paul even talks about this, how the rock represents Christ and the water. Uh, blood and water that uh, poured forth uh, from his side um, on the cross. So it's an allegory. So when you read something in the Old Testament and uh, you could, we can see how Christ would relate to it allegorically. Um, which is another sense of scripture. So, And that's when these kind of start merging with the historical literal sense. Uh, It's called the multiple literal sense, according to Aquinas. So scripture can literally mean multiple things. And on the surface level, you have the historical literal sense, which is what you always have to start off with, right? This is our foundation. You have to read the text for what it says. Uh, But then there's layers, right? Sorry, obscure Shrek reference just came in my head. It's like, ogres are like onions. Um, Anyway, if you haven't seen Shrek, the first one, go watch it. It's phenomenal. Um, and so you have uh, the literal sense of your foundation, and uh, then the allegorical sense, namely uh, if you read in the Old Testament and it can be an allegory to Christ. Uh, the next sense is the moral sense. So uh, when things symbolize what we ought to do, think of the Old Testament when David sinned with Bathsheba, but then repented. Right? Uh, I'm not saying that. When David, when David sinned with Bathsheba, that's the moral sense that we should do that. No, but it was afterwards when he repented, right? When he turned to God after the prophet Nathan uh, told him to, uh, we read that text and morally we we can understand through the moral sense of, wow, so when I sin, no matter how big of a sin, you know, I do, I should repent and I should turn back to God, right? David literally, you know, slept with another man's wife and then had her husband killed when she Uh, found out she was pregnant, right? That's a pretty big goof on David's part, like the biggest of goofs. Yet David repented and found uh, communion with God after he repented. And so we as well should always repent even after we sin and mess up. So that's the moral sense. Uh, The next one is the anagogical sense. So this is when uh, scripture refers to things uh, in regards to like eternal glory. So think of like when the prophets speak about the restoration of Israel. And so literally, they're talking about how uh, they want to see Jerusalem rebuilt, Israel restored after the exile, um, or after the separation of the kingdom. But anagogically, we know that it also can represent uh, the coming of God's true kingdom here on earth. Um, This also kind of bleeds into the allegorical sense of Christ bringing his kingdom and revealing himself. So we have these four senses of scripture. The, The historical literal is kind of always the foundation. And from there, the spiritual sense kind of builds upon that's called the multiple literal sense. So the multiple literal sense, namely that scripture can literally mean uh, more than just one thing. And um, some Protestant uh, brothers and sisters that we have, um, they totally agree with this. And some really, really disagree with this. They know it can literally only mean one thing. But that's the beautiful thing about having the church as kind of the final, having the final say, uh, is that we we know that um, we can have these uh, personal interpretations or these private uh, even revelations um, but if uh, the church says no that's off the mark then we can trust the church uh, having the authority of faith and morals to, to let us know that that was truly off the mark or like the church can often say especially with private revelation think of like the divine mercy chaplet all that kind of stuff even the rosary um, the church uh, vetted it studied it and said yeah this helps people grow closer to Christ in an authentically Catholic way and then it will look at other things and say you know what no that's not quite right. You know, and so the church is kind of always our guiding point, always our compass when it comes to matters of uh, faith and morals. Uh, so kind of using this and applying it to uh, the story of creation. So it's, this is fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, at least I think it's fascinating. Maybe I'm just a nerd. I don't know. But uh, so when you look at the story of creation, right, Everybody everyone knows it. You know, you, God uh, created heavens and earth in six days, right? Man was made on the sixth day, um, and story of Adam and Eve and all that good stuff. Uh, but there's a few different ways you can read this because on on the surface level, you can read this in a literal historical interpretation, right? The literal sense is that God created the world successfully in six 24-hour periods of time, right? And this is not just you know something that some people believe. This is a this is a pretty popular like belief, and it's something the church says you can believe and still be within the s- scope of the Catholic Church. Um, Josephus who was a first century uh, Jewish historian. He believed this, um, majority of ancient interpreters, a lot of the church fathers, Ambrose, Jerome, uh, Gregor the great, even St. Thomas Aquinas defends it. Right. Um, and so this, there's a lot of proponents. And so, uh, it's definitely given primacy to the literal sense of scripture. Um, the Hebrew word yom clearly means uh, day and yeah. And it even says, and there was evening and there was morning, which is, you know, kind of says that would lean to a normal like one day period and so yeah so there's there's some definitely proponents of this there's definitely flaws against this um so there's there's definitely uh, flaws in the theory the sun wasn't created until day four so without the sun we can't know of 24 hour periods of time right and we also know that you know, God rests on the seventh day. We know that that has to be symbolic because God doesn't need to rest. He is God. Um, he does not have a body, right? Not until the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. But God, as God, has no body, therefore does not need rest. Um, so we know there's symbolic things within the creation account, and so we know that there's some symbolism there. So why does is, why isn't it all symbolic? Is it all symbolic? Is it some of it symbolic? So yeah, this is a literal historical interpretation of this. Uh, the next one is called the day age interpretation. So namely that like God created the world over uh, ages. So every day in Genesis symbolized an age. Yeah, there's definitely, this kind of makes sense where like, you know, it's kind of supposed to symbolize that, the, that earth was made in a series of events and each day symbolized an age. It's going to be a thousand years, a million years, whatever it might be. Uh, Definitely, like obviously, arguments against this theory would be all the ones for the the literal interpretation, and honestly, a strong one is the fact that the fathers of the church really took it as twenty four period twenty four hour periods of time, and so and the fathers of the church were some smart dudes, and obviously, but obviously, there is also the scientific argument, as in the fact that like we know that like uh, through through science and through just studying nature. Uh, that it takes longer than 24-hour periods of time to produce things on a natural level. Uh, that being said, uh, God's pretty awesome and He's pretty powerful. And He could He totally and uh, so the definition of a miracle is something that takes place outside of uh, natural events, right? So, namely the Eucharistic miracle. Um, you know, it's, it looks like bread and wine, but it's not bread and wine. It's body, blood and soul, divinity of Jesus Christ. And so we know that God can work miracles. So it's totally within the realm of believability that God like, just like fast tracked everything and created things in seven days. Um, but we know just by studying nature that that's not how nature works now. So we have to, we, you know, obviously none of us were there, so we don't know if that was there or not. Um, so the third one is a symbolic interpretation. Namely, this is all just symbolic, right? The six days are purely symbolic; it doesn't correspond to how the world was created. Rather, it's trying to teach us something. And there are some serious proponents to this view: uh, Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish philosopher; uh, Origen, Saint Clement of Alexandria; Augustine, followed by later Aquinas. Um, Aquinas, uh, you know, argued for a couple of different arguments here. And uh, yeah, so one of the one of the the interpretations that I I really enjoyed that I actually uh, learned from uh, a professor of mine back during my master's, Dr. Barber, namely it was uh, that it's a symbolic for uh, a covenant, right? So the first three days, uh, everything uh, was void. Um, And then the next three days, he, God spent time uh, filling it, right? Like building his temple on nature, right? Namely building and forming his covenant with Adam. There's a lot of covenantal language there um, with, within uh, Genesis. Um, and I want to talk about that in one second, but but the last one, uh, that I won't give much weight to is the mythological interpretation, namely that, uh, this, the people, this argument basically just say that, uh, this is all just, you know, the Israelites, uh, myth, um, of creation, kind of like, uh, various other ancient cultures, uh, you know, of creation myths. Um, this is just their version of that. Uh, and so I, (laughs) Not going to give that one uh, too much uh, weight uh, because uh, for a few reasons. Um, One, um, as a Catholic, one of the things we have to actually believe that is not up for debate is that there was a first man and a first woman. Um, So namely that there was a certain point in time where God intervened and uh, breathed uh, intellectual, um, immortal soul into Adam and Eve, right? So there was one point in time um that God created um the world and namely um that he intervened. So with all that being said, this is four different uh, interpretive options to Genesis. And the church says um apart from the last one, the first three options are totally, totally cool, totally kosher. If you want to believe the church was created in seven literal days and that the earth is only a few thousand years old, uh you can believe that and still be Catholic. Um if you want to believe in the day age theory. Um, you can believe that if you want to believe that it's, a, it's a, a symbolic story, um, trying to teach us a lesson. Uh, you can, you can believe that as long as the nuance there, as long as you can sense that there was at one time, a first man and a first woman, right? There wasn't, uh, multiple sets of first parents, right? doesn't really make sense. Um, intellectually, but the church says, um, that you, we have to believe that there was an Adam and Eve. Doesn't mean their names were Adam and Eve. Right. That does not mean their names are Adam and Eve, but at one point there was a first man and a first woman. Uh, so I personally lean towards the third option. Um, yeah, just because uh, through nature, we know that and through just scientific study, we know that the church or the, uh, not the church, um, the earth is uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years old. Um, I'm not a science major, so uh, forgive me for not knowing the exact estimated date. Or how age of Earth, uh, forgive me, scientists out there. But I lean towards um, the fact that the story of Genesis uh, is trying to teach us something um, that we can, when, when we grow in our relationship uh, with God. Um, and obviously, I, I do believe there's a first man and first woman, and their names might have been Adam and Eve. If so, cool beans. Um, and so the the covenants um, at during Genesis is something that's not quite. It's not as obvious. Um, there's a fantastic book um, called Bible Basics for Catholics. I really recommend you read that. I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. Um, it's called, yeah, it's called Bible Basics for Catholic um, by Bergsma. Um, Dr. Bergsma is a professor at Notre Dame and I'm just making the notes, put them, uh, in the show notes. But yeah, he's a professor at Notre Dame. I met him a few times. He is crazy smart um, I thought I kind of knew something about something. And then I started talking to him about old Testament stuff. Cause that's his like specialty. And I'm just like, dang, dude, you're real smart. I'm gonna go cry in a corner because I'm not that smart. Um, but anyway, a fantastic book. And he talks about the covenant within Adam and Eve, um, but just kind of in a nutshell. Um, so there's a few different verses you can look at here. An idea, too, is is that seven, so Earth is everything's created in seven days, and seven is actually a covenantal number. Um, so uh, you seven yourself when you create a covenant. So um, to swear a covenant means literally to seven oneself. Um, so that's symbolic there, that everything's created in seven days. So it's a covenantal uh, number, at least. Um, and then also, uh, one of the covenants um, that was made uh, a lot of the times um, in... Old Testament and beyond, was that kings would make covenants with their people, right? We see this with David, actually. Um, when uh, David went after he uh, became king, he went out to the people and um, First Samuel and talked about how they were family, right? They were family. He made a covenant with his people to be their father as their king. And so one of the things uh, in the Old Testament, we, we read Jeremiah 33, 20, my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night. So it, you know, kind of, that could be symbolic language, or it could be you know referencing this covenant. In Hosea six two, um, it says, "But at but at Adam they transgressed the covenant." So what's what's the sin of Adam and Eve? They broke the covenant that God made with them, right? By and also in uh, Genesis uh, chapter three, I believe um, it's talking about how uh, Adam uh, had a son Seth and. Uh, the language is actually the same as Genesis uh, Genesis two, when um, uh, when it said uh, Adam or God made man in His image and likeness, in the image of God. Genesis one, sorry, uh, in the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. And Genesis three, when it starts talking about Adam uh, having a son Seth, um, it said Seth uh, Adam begat Seth in His image and likeness. So same kind of familial language, covenantal language, because covenants make families, right? Covenants aren't just contracts that can be broken. Uh, Covenant makes family. That's what a covenant does. Um, And so there's various different types of covenants. Um, That's a topic for another day, but namely that's what covenants do. When you enter into marriage, you create a covenant with your spouse, right? So you, you become family with your spouse. They are literally your family now because you have uh, made a covenant with them. So, that namely in the creation of Genesis, God made a covenant with Adam and Eve by making them, his children, not by nature, but through grace, right? And it is the grace that they lost at the fall, um, that, and that's when they broke the covenant, right? They they separated themselves from the family of God. That's what I think a lot of people confuse with um, original sin. Original sin isn't really a, it's not a stain on you. Rather, it's it's something that you've lost. It's more of like a hole when adam and eve were created they were given grace they were given these preternatural abilities and all these things like that and what happened was when they when they fell right after after the fall uh, the original sin uh, when they had children they couldn't give what they didn't have so the sin of adam and eve uh, was basically meant they weren't able to pass along this relationship with god to their children they weren't able to pass along this grace that they had lost. So when we were baptized, we were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we receive the very life of Christ through the Holy Spirit in our souls. So that's why it destroys original sin, because original sin was when Adam and Eve lost grace. They were lost that covenantal familial relationship with God the Father. And it's through baptism that we are restored, and we are brought back into the family of God. Uh, so with all that being said, um, you can totally believe whatever you want about Genesis when it comes to those three interpretive options. You can't just believe that it never happened and it's total BS and it's just a myth because um, then you're probably just not Catholic. Um, but if you if you want to believe in seven literal days, like cool beans, man, go for it. If you want to believe in the day-age theory, cool beans, man, go for it. If you want to believe in, uh, in, in that that's symbolic, but there really was an Adam and Eve, a first man and a first woman at some point, doesn't mean their names were Adam and Eve, uh, that's where I fall into. So I think you're pretty nifty. If you also fall into that, category. But if you don't, and if it's one of the other two, like you're still my Catholic bro and we can still be friends. I just might, you know, make fun of you or something. I don't know. Anyway, if you have any questions about that, uh, shoot me uh, an email, let me know, contact us. Uh, hope this was helpful. Um, this episode of, uh, Catholics with Bibles. Um, and remember covenants make families and that word in Greek is diatheke. Drop that on somebody in conversation this week and you'll blow their mind. All right, y'all, have a good day. God bless. Hey guys, once again, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Catholics with Bibles. Uh, Very excited uh, for everything we have coming up y'all's way. Uh, Don't forget to uh, give us a review, like, share, do all that kind of fun stuff. And we'll see y'all next time. God bless.